Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Welcome to Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. And uh, joining us once again as our mission is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get better, faster broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. Now, probably anyone who's listened to Gigabit Nation knows that Kansas City is the center of some serious developments in uh, broadband as Google builds out its Gigabit network. But many may not know that um, a Gigabit network is already thriving in Kansas City, and what's more, it's a wireless network. Yep, wireless. One gig and more over a wireless connection. Computers and Telecom, Inc. uh, is a wireless ISP, or WISP, and they're doing some pretty interesting things uh, with their gig network. And uh, unless anybody thinks that you know we're going to get into a wired versus wireless showdown here on, on the show today, um, really what we're going to do is talk about the complement of wireless and wired. You know what happens in a city when you have um, a gigabit wireless network and you have a gigabit uh, fiber network, and we have figured out a way to work in tandem. Uh, as opposed to at cross purposes, and I think that both technologies definitely have a have a place in the broadband scheme of things. Our guest today is Graham Gibson, who is the president and CEO of Computers and Telecom uh, (CTC). And uh, if you read my article in GigaOM on Monday, uh, you got a high-level view of what uh, CTC is doing in Kansas City. And today we're going to take a really good deep look at you know what exactly is happening. What is this you know gigabit wireless all about? Uh, what is uh, CTC doing in Kansas City? And and maybe more importantly for for a lot of you listening, how your community can get in on the gig wireless action. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Great, and as well, it's definitely a pleasure to have you. Uh, we were going to have uh, GigaOM senior writer Stacy Higginbotham as my co-host, but unfortunately, uh, Stacy got hit with a major migraine and uh, won't be able to uh, to join us. But we will uh, we will carry on, and it's, it is kind of interesting because last week I was doing the show uh, with. Um, one of the board of directors from WISPA, the Wireless ISP Association, and I'm sorry. It was Matt Larson. Matt Larson, yes, Matt Larson, and uh, and Matt and I were discussing, and then Graham called in with an interesting observation about the the network that they have going on in Kansas City, and I was so you know enthralled by the whole thing, and I figured, well, you know, we got to get this out out here and talk to people about it. So Graham, let's uh, let's talk first about. Um, how do you get a gig speed through a wireless connection? Because a lot, like I asked you last week, you know, a lot of people say this can't be done. You know, they, they point well, that out as one of the limitations the of wireless. Is, yeah, the mistake is in thinking that it can be done mobile. It cannot be done mobile per, uh, with the current technology. Right. What it can be done is uh, using fixed wireless. Now, to, to differentiate, since not everybody is really familiar with the difference between mobile wireless and fixed wireless. Uh, mobile wireless is basically a technology that allows you to move about while you're connected to the, the Internet or, or various networks. And that movement has its own requirements from the standpoint of physics. You uh, are obviously using much smaller transmitters because you have small batteries involved, 
and so there has to be you know fairly large antenna arrays at the transmitter site, but the receivers are uh, are reasonably weak powered in comparison. With fixed wireless, you have two high capacity radios pointing at each other, uh, particularly when done in a point to point modality. Uh, and most of our high end business customers are on these point to point links. Um, there, there are two technologies that are in play in fixed wireless, point-to-point -point and point-to-multipoint. Whenever you're doing point-to-multipoint, you have to take the bandwidth of the transmitter and slice it across all of the users that are involved. With point-to-point, -point, you can dedicate the bandwidth to that one connection. And that is the, the secret sauce as to how you get gigabit speeds out of wireless technology. Mm -hmm. Now... In in practice, uh, what are the limitations and and what are the advantages of going this route? Well, the principal advantage is speed for construction, and also the fact that constructing fiber networks is a, a fairly expensive proposition. I mean, from a low end side in a rural environment of maybe thirty dollars a foot to five hundred dollars a foot in a metro environment. It depends a lot on what you're crossing and how many permits you need and how many uh, roads and bridges you have to cross and whether there are railroad tracks involved and whether there are utilities that have to be relocated. But all in all, it can get to be very expensive to do uh, fiber, particularly when that, that fiber is buried. Uh, now, aerial fiber, which is strung along poles just like telephone lines, uh, is a little bit less expensive. And in, in some uh, ways of thinking, you can actually string fiber about as cheaply as you can string copper today. Uh, so there are a lot of things that are being done for uh, fiber-delivered networks uh, over uh, aerial fiber. And uh, some new players are in that, that arena, obviously. Google is in this arena in our local environment. Uh, but a number of municipalities and cities uh, and uh, also power utilities are getting into that, uh, that area as well. And then there are a growing number of, uh, of gas line companies and, uh, and even uh, sewer uh, uh, operators who are discovering that their right-of-ways for their pipes and paths can also have a fiber uh, channel running along it. And consequently, that may be a way for them to make a little bit more money on their, uh, their particular right-of-ways. And there's, there are getting to be some very interesting partnerships that are coming up, although many of them are not well-known by the general public, and it's a little hard to track down some of this activity. Uh, you have to have your, your ear to the ground for a rather an extended period of time to really figure it all out. Mm -hmm. We actually have a call early on in here, so let me see if I can uh, get them in and uh, see who's on the line. Good morning. This is Gigabit Nation. We have a call in? Hello. Yes, hello. This yes, is Gigabit Nation. This How is uh, Ron Deuce with... Uh, NetX Internet. Uh, we we are uh, a wireless ISP located in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and we also have a, uh, a gigabit wireless network where we provide a gigabit wireless access to uh, business and government customers. Mm -hmm. How how long have you guys been been in operation? Uh, well, we've been a wireless ISP since about 2003. And um, we started off uh, providing uh, DSL access and working with the telcos where 
after being frustrated with, um, you know, not being able to deal directly with our customers, we built out a wireless network. Mm-hmm. And uh, which particular technologies did you use to uh, to pull this together? For the uh, for the Gigabit Wireless Network, right? Well, we we use a, a you know a combination of um, you know multiple technologies, not only uh, Gigabit switches uh, from Cisco and uh, Juniper, but also uh, wireless company wireless manufacturing companies such as Ubiquiti, uh, Bridgewave and uh, various others. Mm-hmm. Now, did you have a, a specific question for Graham? Because I'll have a question for both of you when, afterwards. Well, first I want to say congratulations to Graham for uh, being able to uh, provide uh, that type of service in his area. It's always good to see um, other uh, wireless ISPs uh, do uh, you know, innovative things. Um, the, the, you know, the question I think I had was, in terms of um, your peering points, um, have you found it to be difficult or more easier to um, to get and feed the upstream traffic with now that uh, Google um, has gotten into the arena at, in your location? I, the Google uh, project here has certainly brought more light to the subject of peering fabrics. And there are more peering fabrics operating in Kansas City right now. Uh, when we started in 2004, we were the only one. Uh, now there are actually three peering fabrics operating here uh, that uh, interconnect uh, a total of seven data centers uh, and uh, carrier hotels in the in the region. Uh, and that's made a big difference in the overall level of connectivity in the market. Uh, and also driven down bandwidth costs. So uh, so it's been a great thing, uh, not only for operators, but for consumers as well. And if I could just interject just for the folks who may not be familiar with the term, what is peering and how does that contribute to uh, the lowering of prices in the area? Well, uh, Internet service providers have to get connected to one another. Uh, and so if if one customer is say on Sprint and another customer is on my network and another customer is on AT&T the traffic that is flowing back and forth between those customers whether this one website is delivering an email to to my customer who's on my network that has to go through a series of steps or uh or hops to get uh to the endpoint location as a general rule there's somewhere between 17 and 19 hops and if you actually will use a command called traceroute to look at those hops, you'll see the points that where you're going to interconnect from one carrier to another, and you'll actually be able to see their names and, and, the, and in many cases, the cities that they connect in. And one of the things that you'll notice pretty quickly is that there tends to be a bias for connectivity in cities like Chicago uh, or Aspen, Aspen Virginia, uh, where May, uh, the, uh, back where May East operated there and so on, uh, or cities like Dallas that have a lot of networks all coming together in one place. Now, since these networks are already coming together in one place, it's reasonably easy for the operators of those networks to cross-connect to one another, and they can either do that directly, building a peering relationship between the two carriers, or they can do it through an intermediary like the KCNAP, which we started here in 2004. 
And by uh, driving those, those connections that way, we can take advantage of the speed of Ethernet switches today. Uh, one of the things that, that was a, a real eye-opener when I first started developing the NAP was that the fastest ATM connection that I could get at the Chicago NAP was 622 megabits per second, which sounds pretty fast. But when you're talking about putting a bunch of people on gigabit networks, it obviously is not very fast. So I, being able to go out and use Ethernet switches that were capable of 10 gigabits and now 40 gigabits and coming 100 gigabits and eventually terabit speeds, I, we dramatically lower the cost of making that connection from one carrier to another. And we also don't have to carry those bits all the way across the country, say, to Chicago or Dallas to come back to Kansas City to cross the street when one carrier to another carrier's relationship is, is interworking there. That increase, increases performance and drives down costs. So these peering uh, points and peering relationships, uh, which are sometimes called NAPs and sometimes called IAXs or, or Internet Exchange Points, uh, are there to kind of grease the whole process of moving lots of bits back and forth between each other. Um, the more peering that's done, the less big pipe you have to get out to the Internet. And the more peering connections you have with different carriers, the, shortest your, uh, the shorter your pathway will be from the start to the destination. So if, I, if I'm looking at a normal transit, it might be 17 to 19 hops. But if I'm going through a well-connected access point like the KC NAP, then I can dramatically reduce that maybe to 11 hops. And by reducing the number of hops, I also reduce latency. That increases the quality of things like voice and video, makes the network work faster, it's more responsive, and so on. And so when, when you're thinking about something like a, a, a VoIP call, and particularly as a wireless operator, this is a concern for us, um, VoIP operates well if you are within about 120 milliseconds from one location to another. All right, That's, that's about a tenth of a second. Right? And that, that little tiny delay that you sometimes hear when you're on a cell phone call, that's, uh, that's the buffers uh, working to mesh those calls together. I, and that buffer gets worse and worse and worse as the latency goes up. So if we can keep that overall latency down to about 120 milliseconds, that's a very good thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I, wireless operators pay a penalty of about 20 milliseconds on the edge because when I'm, particularly when I'm trying to go point to multipoint, I have to service customer A and then customer B and then customer C and customer D and so on. And so my radio is time slicing between each one of those customers to keep them connected. That means that there's a certain amount of latency at the edge there, I, and I need to take that latency, if possible, out of the core by making my core faster and more robust connected. And that's what we did as a wireless operator here to make sure that VoIP was going to work. Good. Now, I, I, uh, the, so the question I wanted to pose to both of you, okay, now, now we have a better understanding of how, uh, you know, how some of this technology works. WISP, if you read about them in the paper or the news, you know, whatever, they're usually all referenced as being a, a, a rural provider, right? They, they, they're they beneficial to the rural areas. But obviously you, Graham, uh, and oh, both of you are, are from urban areas. Um, are, are you to a rarity, or are there more 
urban wisp out there than we knew, and and how can communities take better advantage of the fact that there are uh, wisps out there that are serving urban areas? The short answer is that there's a large number of urban wisps. I there are about 3,500 wisps overall, about uh, about 600 of any significant size. Now compared to giant cable companies and so on, these companies are all still fairly small operators. And because of the the financial meltdown in 2008, we have not yet seen the aggregation of these operators into larger and larger players, although I expect that certainly will happen. Uh, But uh, the individual operators that operate in urban areas usually are simply more adept at the engineering that is required to avoid interference. I mean, the short answer for a a WISP starting up is to say, oh, gee, let's go someplace where there's not a lot of interference so I don't have to pay for spectrum. Urban operators do have to pay for spectrum. We do a lot of licensed shots. And we do that because you can't get this kind of capacity over unlicensed in the presence of a lot of interference. Mm-hmm. Now, how's, how has it been in Cleveland? Uh, how, how long have you been around? And tell us the name of your, your company and your name again, please. Uh, my name is Ron Deuce, and I'm with NetX Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'd have to agree with Graham. Uh, in, in the urban areas, um, it, it's definitely uh, more of an engineering challenge, and in a lot of cases, uh, you, you would you would definitely want to go into not only unlicensed but using licensed uh, spectrum as a as another tool uh, to to deliver you know deliver bandwidth and um, I think lots of um, there are a lot of like Graham already uh, mentioned there are a lot of urban wisps out there and I think um, communities um, can take benefit. Um, out, out of using these urban lists to extend a lot of the fiber networks um, that are either being built out today uh, since the speeds are comparable uh, in, into what they're trying to achieve when they're building out the fiber in- infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So as a uh, – because I know in uh, it was in the news in Kansas City that a neighborhood group wanted to create some sort of wireless <laughs> Entity. I think they wanted to create a wireless co-op uh, because they uh, they didn't have a library, they didn't have a community center, they didn't really have a good option for a computing center in their area. So they said, "Well, we can turn to wireless." Now Google kind of shot that down, at least in the media. But um, is that the kind of thing you're thinking about? Is you know we we're we're building this fiber network, and it may or may not get to my particular neighborhood in in, in a short period of time. But wireless might offer a way to get in uh, quickly and to provide a solid sound service. Absolutely. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, it, it's definitely a, a, an option in terms of not only uh, speed and delivery of the service, but it also you know a reliable backup in, in a lot of cases. A lot of what we do. Um, is put in not only primary links but also backup links or links for particular applications. So, for instance, um, a business in, in, in our case may put in may already have fiber or put in fiber, but there may be some troubles that happen either in the upstream or in the core of the the fiber network, 
um, and now they're able to go into the wireless network um, and, and and gain access to the uh, to the services that way. Excellent, Ron. Thank you very much for calling in. I really appreciate it, and we're gonna we're gonna carry on. Do keep in touch uh, either through uh, the show or, or sending me email. Uh, but definitely want to keep tabs on your progress as well, um, and figure out what what else is going on in that Cleveland market. So thank you very much for calling in. Sure, thank you guys, and uh, keep up the good work. All righty. So, um, Graham, let's talk about – I want to talk about two scenarios, right? I've got an urban community, and the urban community says, okay, we need more, better broadband, and they may be a good candidate for WISP. How do they proceed to either find one or create one and then move their project forward? But then how would this same scenario take place in a uh, rural area? Well, uh, there are uh, two things that, that you're really asking here. One is procedural, how do, how do you actually build these networks? And the other one is how do you find out about them? I, in the case of finding out about them, uh, there is an excellent industry association called WISPA. Uh, it's at wispa.org. And uh, WISPA is now, I believe, more than 600 members strong. I. Uh, and they represent some of the uh, of the best wireless operators that uh, that are operating in the country, uh, and they also have significant vendor uh, relationships, so that somebody that's trying to start a WISP, WISP can also go to WISPA and find resources uh, that could help them build their wireless networks. Uh, like any other subject, uh, it's easy to say, "Oh, I'm going to jump into the wireless game." It's another thing entirely to discover some of the realities that only experience teaches you. I, I mean, I, one of the things that, that absolutely boggled my imagination was the day that we lost a four-inch pipe on top of a major building in about a 60-mile-an-hour wind. Very unusual for a, a pipe like that to fail uh, in a scenario like that, but I it taught me to build stronger and stronger and stronger mounts for everything all the time. And uh, so we're, we're very careful now in our engineering on, on building rooftops. And we're also very respectful of the building's appearance. There are a number of people that just don't like the idea of putting a big antenna on a building. And if you do your engineering right, you really don't have to oversize those dishes and so on. Uh, it's the trick is realizing how far you have to go. It's a physics problem. If I have to go greater and greater distance, I need bigger and bigger dishes. Uh, but the uh, the necessity to do that is limited if you have as many buildings where uh, where you have roof rights uh, as I do in Kansas City. We have about 160 buildings here that that we have roof rights uh, or that potential of putting antennas on, and so that makes it a lot easier for us to uh, to try to do these these antennas smaller uh, and make the uh, the appearance a little bit more comfortable for the building that we're going to. Mm-hmm. Now, from a I don't know. Now you're describing what you're describing. That mainly for the urban area, or would the same issue be relevant for a rural area? Well, in a rural area, you start talking a great deal more about uh, antenna towers and water towers than you do urban buildings. 
Mm-hmm. I, one of the reasons I like being a, an urban myth, uh, a wisp, I, I, it's not an urban myth, it's an urban <laughs> wisp. Uh, You're not going to let that fly, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, is the uh, is the question of being able to get to my antennas by using an elevator rather than having to climb an antenna tower. Mm-hmm. I, and so that's one of the good things that, that I have. I can usually get to a lot of my transmitter sites without having to, to uh, have somebody suit up in a climbing, climbing harness and go to, to work up a tower. I, but when you get rural, you need the height. This is line-of-sight technology. I mean, there are... Uh, growing numbers of non-line-of-sight tools available, but those are primarily for endpoint delivery, not for uh, links of any significant distance. I, you, you don't do a non-line-of-sight 18-mile link, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you get a little farther out of the country, uh, the trick is to get up on antenna towers. Now, there are, happily, there are a number of antenna towers that can be leased out there. Unfortunately, the cost to lease those towers is sometimes quite significant. I mean, prices are all over the map depending on your negotiating uh, ability and the, the number of towers you buy, but it's not unusual to pay as much as a dollar uh, a foot an antenna uh, when you're when you're building a, on a uh, on a large tower. And if you're having to go up a 300-foot tower with 10 antennas, that can be quite a significant bill. When we've been faced by uh, like situations uh, like that, we've built our own towers uh, because we prefer to own the infrastructure uh, rather than uh, than lease it. But uh, uh, that's a, a situation that we're able to do because we do have some access to capital. Um, the The good news is that the the industry isn't maturing a little bit, and there are starting to be some financial resources available for better wisps. Uh, particularly for some leasing companies that actually get that this technology works and is useful for building community networks or rural networks. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't see much help from the stimulus, uh, and this, I think, is largely a case of not having a, a large and effective lobbying force uh, compared to the traditional telecom companies. Mm-hmm. But I certainly... Uh, one of the things that, that the WISP pride themselves in is the fact that they don't take government money and they and they do build their own networks. And what they're looking for is simply a level playing field. They do, they don't want to have you know incumbent operators supported by USF funds uh, competing against them when they're building their own networks for that region as well. Mm-hmm. So in in some respects there are. Um there are political issues, and then there are logistical issues, and I think that the, the net of this is that people have to uh, adjust for for both. Um, in terms right. of a, a strategy, I mean, this show is big on you know what's the strategy of getting from point A to point B. Um, and again, I guess this is a procedural question, but uh, if I am a community in a uh, urban environment, or I'm a community in a rural environment. How do I move forward? And I'll give us a little bit of context. You know, I recently wrote about a number of different options that communities have taken. They have created a uh, nonprofit organization. They have used a community foundation. They have conducted um, local fundraising among businesses. Uh, in another case, they're doing the fundraising by selling promissory notes to residents as a way to build out um, the infrastructure. Uh, 
I didn't really say one was better than the other. These were sort of all options. But from your perspective, what's a way for a community to uh, get engaged, to get a network um, built, but also when the interest of the community is using that network or, ha- or levering that, that network for economic development, how do they make sure they achieve you know, what's best for the community while also allowing all the private sector folks involved to, you know, to also make a profit? Part of the trick of doing this is to make sure that there are regular meetings and communications among the various stakeholders, mm-hmm. I, and that the the goals of building the network and the the network resources are well documented and written down so that everybody is committed to the progress uh, the uh, the project. Uh, one of the things that, that is significantly important is community support, um, and one of the things that the WISPs as operators have been very successful at is engaging their communities and really communicating with all of the stakeholders involved. And often they get started simply because somebody desperately needs connectivity at City Hall or at the fire station, and that City Hall had access to a water tower or the fire station had a a communications tower, and that made a partnership possible between an operator that had some bandwidth somewhere that uh, then figures out that they can use this wireless technology to get these points linked together. Uh, the, the breakdowns start happening when you try to start scaling these networks. And one of the things that, that we need to avoid in a, in a conversation like this are the kind of uh, technology wars that go on. Uh, there are a lot of wireless operators out there that are terribly proud of the fact that they have a wireless network, and they point to the tower and they say, that's my tower and these are my antennas, and look at all of this wonderful infrastructure. And the plain fact of the matter is the John Q. public doesn't care. All they care about is that they have a reliable connection, uh, that it works the way that they want it to work, that there's tech support when they need it, and that they can get it at a reasonable price. Those are the things that they care about. And so one of the problems with some of the wireless operators, uh, and I've been guilty of this myself, is to get a little bit excited about the technology because you can see what can be done with it and start saying, oh, I'm a wireless operator, I'm not going to do fiber. That's ridiculous, right? When you start talking about aggregating lots and lots of, of gigabit wireless shops, you better have some fiber involved because you're now at 10 gigs or 20 gigs or 40 gigs of aggregate capacity, and fiber is the better way to do that much bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I agree entirely. I mean, I think I've 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 listened to, sat through too many of these territorial. You know, you can't do this. You can only do it this way. And you you know, we can't you know have this integration or you know this you know they they basically badmouth the other team or the other you know the other technology and i just think that's very counterproductive to the community's best interest that well, the other thing is that they don't really understand it mm-hmm. one of the one of the challenges that wireless has had for years is the whole question of weather yes weather affects wireless we get occasionally hit by lightning it's about as painful to us as the fiber-seeking backhoe is to the the, as the fiber operator. Uh, and believe me, there are plenty of fiber-seeking backhoes out there. I don't know how they <laughs> manage to find the fiber so wonderfully, but they do. And mm-hmm. like they have a detector on them that goes right for it. <laughs> I'm the, so 
we all have issues in our technology, right? The mistake mm-hmm. is saying, oh, we can't do this or that or the other thing because that technology doesn't work for that, right? Mm-hmm. If you understand it, you understand that all of this technology kind of fits together. And quite frankly, if a slice of, of cheese would do the job of moving bits around, I'd be trying to figure out how to attach my Ethernet cable to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? we, we have to stop thinking about wireless as one silo and fiber is another and copper is another. We're in the communications business, all of these operators, and that's what they need to accomplish. They need to communicate, and they need to communicate across modalities. They need mm-hmm. to communicate with all of the technologies. And one of the other stunning problems that a lot of the fiber operators have is that they fail to realize that ultimately somebody's going to want to move. And the Mm -hmm. moment that you have somebody moving, you better have somebody that has some skill with wireless in the game because wireless is the best way to take care of the mobile user. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, more data is flowing today on wireless devices of all types and stripes than on fiber and wireline connections, and that changed several years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, the aggregates are still much higher in the fire and the, and the, the wireline world, but uh, when you look at the total amount of bit flow, it's higher in wireless today. That's very interesting. I, uh, I'm not sure what we are going to do about the knowledge gap and the silos, because I think some people tend to live in those, and I don't know, is it a matter of who you hire as a consultant that you need to make sure that they are unbiased? Is it that, um, you know, the community stakeholders have to, I don't know, do the equivalent of going through a training course to understand? I mean, you know, because I've been in in this business since 05, and, um, you know, and I have seen consultants who come in with blinders on. I mean, I see it today. It has not changed in the last seven years. You know, but I think, well, then what, is, what does the community do? Because they don't know, so they go to a consultant. They go to a vendor, right? And the vendor is going to basically tell you you need what they're selling. You know, what's the way out? What's the, you know, what's the way to sanity in this whole circus? Well, there are plenty of operators out there that you can engage to vet projects. Mm-hmm. Right? One of the things that, that I recommend uh, municipalities do, as an example, is if they're getting uh, bids from multiple players, that they look at all those bids, they go and talk to the the folks that they like the best, and then they select one of the other vendors to act as a consultant on the project to make sure that all of the considerations of various technologies are being considered in the project. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because having that alternative opinion that is not necessarily tied to the economic driver of that project can make a huge difference in how successful the project is. Wow, I've never heard this idea before. This is is good. Um, And have you worked in cases like that or with those kinds of situations? Uh, Yes, and and I've served on both sides of that fence. Mm -hmm. That is, wow, something definitely to ponder. Uh, for for one of my articles, I guess, and also from a from a consulting standpoint. Um, now, does this say that you don't hire consultants, or if consultants are going to be in the mix? Because the typical process seems to be, you know, community comes up with this you know idea. I need, I want, I, we got to have broadband. 
then they say, okay, well, we need a consultant to come in and tell us what we need because we're not sure what we need. And, you know, do you, like, forego that process and go straight to the idea no. you're talking no, about? Do you have or? the capital to go through that process? I mean, you, if you have the money to engage a company like Black & Veatch as an engineering firm to design the, the thing from the get-go for you, great. But I find that projects of this nature tend to be best when many stakeholders are invited to the picture, that they all can contribute to it. Think of the way that the Internet itself was built. I, if somebody had an idea for the Internet. They, they wanted to do something like, oh, the World Wide Web. And so they, uh, they wrote up an initial specification, and they put it out for comments. And this request for comment process happens all the time. Uh, you'll, you'll hear that term used frequently on the net, and particularly when you're looking up documentation. And so all of these comments come back, and then a committee looks at all of the comments and says, oh, well, this is a good idea, and we'll plug that in, and this is a good idea, we'll plug that in, and this is a good idea, and we'll plug that in. And then it, you have that initial uh, uh, whole series of conversations there, and then you also get the I, I, you also get the situation where you look at the total project and then treat it as a Delphi poll. Uh, once you get all of these opinions put together and you have your best ideas, you submit that to the committee. The committee massages that a little bit. They come up with a specification. And then they resubmit it to everybody, not to ask them to recomment on it, but to ask them to focus where the highest areas of importance are. And by doing that, your project is vetted at two levels. Not only are the good ideas in there, but the focus towards the greatest payoffs become eminently obvious. Mm -hmm. So it is a bit of a detailed process, but on the, on the flip side, there's a lot riding on this, and so it, it should right. be... That's right. You're, you're talking about making a significant investment in something. You are building infrastructure. It's just as, as major a planning project as building a road. Mm -hmm. and, and, and should have at least as much attention to detail. Right. I, I you know, <laughs> uh, the easier part. to go out there and spend their own money and not talk to anybody about it and build what they want to build in the hope that the world will come to it. Mm -hmm. Great. You know, the world is full of businesses like that. But, that's not a project that is going to be highly successful, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm actually doing an interview now with a city up in Canada, and they um, spent a fairly decent number of years on the planning process. One of the things, one of the sort of the tactics that they used was they created a um, a called a planning group that was independent of the political community. Other than they could, you know, participate obviously by you know going to meetings and whatnot, but the actual group that was doing the planning was removed from the political scene primarily because they wouldn't have the three-year election cycle mentality, you know, where everything needs to be rushed before the next election, and if you remove that particular pressure, and you have some long-term, you know, people with long-term vision as part of the planning process, they feel that's how they got to where they are now, about to launch a a network that everyone feels very comfortable is going to be successful. Mm 
So, so in that case, it was all about you know the the the, the planning body, which I gather is you know a lot of what you're saying here is that you know your your planning group ne- needs to both. I guess be uh, include a number of people from a lot of different disciplines, and then also tap the knowledge of people from a lot of different uh, disciplines. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's one of the reasons that that Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri's applications to Google were successful, because uh, a very large, broad spectrum of the technology community contributed to that process. They. They were engaged in public meetings. There were a number of discussions. Now, the the approach that finally uh, worked with Kansas City, Kansas, was a little bit more constrained from the standpoint of public involvement. But on the Kansas City, Missouri side, there was immense input from stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Now, in in the scenario of Kansas City, uh, you you've brought in or the community has brought in Google. And and everyone's very happy about that, but you know I often keep coming back to the theme of you know there are community goals and there are um, you know your private sector partners goals, and is there a danger that when you get a bigger like a huge company as a partner? Because there are still people who who would die to have the opportunity to work with a Google, but when you when you work with a company that big, are you still able to create the kind of process you described, where you know you get everybody on the same page, you know you have a document that kind of guides everything, you know, is that same strategy workable with the bigger players? Uh, yes and no. I, when you have a bigger player involved, they of course are driving the bus as far as their objectives are concerned. Mm-hmm. But if you can engage them early and show that it's in their enlightened best interest to be part of a process like this, there are many companies that are very willing to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's to show how it pays off for them, right? And then, and I think that that's um, you know one of the things that I know in the in the uh, Muni wireless days, the Muni Wi-Fi days that I felt there was a lack of consideration or adequate consideration for the private sector partners uh needs and and you know their business operation you know that's why we had communities basically putting businesses like Earthlink in a straitjacket and say well we want this network and we want it for free and if it's not for free for everybody we at least want it free for this group of people i mean it was like to me very unrealistic the kinds of demands that they put and then subsequently projects failed and, and so, and that was part of the infancy of projects of those natures. All right, mm-hmm. and uh, when the second round of those projects came around, where the mistakes had already uh, happened, I mm-hmm. we start seeing uh, uh, we started seeing a much better process. All right, and that's that's part of of why I, I started suggesting this Delphi Pole approach because. It is unrealistic to say to any private commercial operator, "You're going to do this for free." All right? Right. Somehow, there, there, there uh, is no such thing as a free lunch. You, you pay for it somehow. All right? Right. The trick is to realize how you are paying for it, and to find ways that work within the objectives of the project. Uh, I mean, there are advertising-supported uh, projects that do work. All right. 
there are uh, there are uh, projects that are supported by philanthropic groups that do work, uh, and there are projects that are supported by municipal objectives that do work. But somewhere there's got to be a stakeholder in this thing that is an initial economic driver that at least gets the fundamentals of the project in place and operational. There are a lot of companies that will bet on future possibility and growth if they know that the core nut expenses are covered. Um, they, they might even put in all the labor themselves, but uh, some at some level they have to know that that this project is economically viable. And certainly anybody that is financing a project like that would have to right. do that. Now let's talk about financing for for a minute. I mean, I think regardless of whether it is a community-run project or it is a private, uh, public-private partnership or the WISP is doing it on their own, that the issue of financing is going to come into the picture because when you and I talked for the um, for the article I did earlier this week, you know, we talked about the fact that you guys are very mindful of how much is the cost of expansion. And you don't expand until a certain point, a certain number of metrics are in place. Um, <clears throat> how do we, you know, what are some rules of thumb for addressing the financing aspect of this? Because somewhere one of these partners, players in the in the process, has to go for money after you get right. past that initial build-out. Right. I one of the things that you need to realize is that the reason that uh, otherwise well-structured companies like Telligent and Windstar and Ricochet aren't here anymore is because they bought off Wall Street's statement that, oh, go ahead and build it and they will come and we will continue to finance you until you break even, right? And that was a mistake because people like that don't continue to finance projects like that for the real time that it takes to get these num these networks loaded. So we've been very careful about expanding at our edges. I mean, if I had unlimited capital, uh, I would have already built a wireless network across the the United States. Uh, it, it, compared to, to what uh, was spent in the stimulus, uh, wireless operators could have built rural connectivity across 70% of of the uh of the country for uh, for what was spent in the in the stimulus. Mm -hmm. It's uh, because we do it much more cost effectively because we're spending our own money, all right? Mm -hmm. I, we we understand that there's got to be a payoff for this stuff and and although we're willing to look at at 3 years and sometimes 5 year payback periods, we're not willing to look at 20 year payback periods, which is what a lot of the telecom guys end up in reality, hat. and uh, so we really have to pay attention to our financing because we know we are ultimately spending our own money. Mm -hmm. um, the the other thing is that we're quite frankly capable of doing a lot more with a lot less. I, you know, there there are some very good standards in the industry, uh, and we try to, to build to those standards. You know, we we look at at what it's going to cost from the standpoint of the initial investment. And in places like the core, where every time you you build it, you have to build it for years uh, because you can't shut it down. This is a machine that you, you build and you can't turn off. It operates uh, 365 uh, uh, all 24 hours. Uh, 
it, it never gets an opportunity to really be taken offline to work on it. So core infrastructure, you tend to overbuild a lot, and then that means that you spend a lot initially on it because you don't want to have to forklift in a new one every six months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you look at investments like that over five to seven years, certainly. Uh, but uh, a lot of elements at the edge, uh, you build what you need and realize that in an, another 18 months, the technology will have doubled and the prices will have halved. And so uh, you can, by structuring your projects right and building what you need to build, develop the core of your network uh, and, and build the, the backbone that is required to, to do it, and then build at the edge when the, uh, the economic drivers for that are there. Mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, you know, a perfect example of this is, is somebody that's out in a rural environment. They've got some land, um, and they're willing to put up a tower. You know, they're, they're willing to, to pay some wisp to build a tower for $5,000. And a wisp can build a tower, a 99-foot tower for $5,000, where the big guys would spend $25,000 doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, so I, you can put a tower up, and you get a, get a backhaul link in, and maybe there's a little... Uh, housing community of, you know, 120 houses around that immediate adjacency, and, and that now you can service that group, uh, and, you you know, you pay the uh, the guy that, that built the tower uh, with a fast connection of their own that they don't pay for for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, that's how these these rural WISPs, a lot of them operate, and, uh, and they... they they struggle sometimes just to come up with that five grand to build that tower. I mean, that's that's a significant investment for them, uh, because the uh, the people that are supplying capital out there, y- you don't go to a bank and say, "I want to borrow, you know, five thousand dollars to build a tower," uh, because they they don't consider it as a uh, an asset that they can collateralize. They don't understand it. They don't understand the value of the thing, and. So it's it's fallen on private companies that that are usually are in the leasing modalities uh, to uh, to finance that kind of structure. And we've been lucky uh, to have found a company like that, uh, a company called Agility Ventures, who uh, although their money is reasonably expensive when compared to a bank, um, has a real knowledge of the industry and understands that a lot of the infrastructure is actually out in the field and not at your home lo- uh, location and so on. And I and is willing to change the rules that are normally applied by leasing companies to allow all of those things to happen, and they tend to fund on cash flow rather than on uh, on you know a, a limited bank perspective of creditworthiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are companies out there that that will uh, will finance things like this. Um, you are going to pay more for it than you you know you would go to a bank, and, and you have to be willing to accept that, which is why we're careful about where we build. Right, right. So let's ask uh, another business question. We've got about uh, eight, nine minutes here left. Um, I have heard uh, from companies, from smaller providers, WISP and others, other small providers, that they get frustrated in communities where the community will just run to AT&T or they'll run to Verizon or run to the big companies and say, help us, help us, help us. And all, the, and all the other companies do are either ignore them or screw them over on pricing or what have you. And the little guy, the local little guy, gets totally passed over because, uh, you know, the government will look like, oh, well, you're not big enough. You're not stable enough. You're not whatever, whatever, right? How do you combat that? Because I sense that some of this is 
image, right? People just assume that because you're a small WISP, you're not as solid as an AT&T or Verizon. And in some cases, you know, WISPs are, are struggling business people, and they very well may not have a lot of resources. But, you know, well, from your perspective... The problem is that many of the early WISPs were technologists or visionaries that didn't necessarily have a lot of, of business backing behind them or, or a lot of business training. Mm-hmm. I, that's changing a little bit with the maturing of the industry. I, you know, and I, even a, a company that is as small as 15 or 20 people can now have a professional business development person working with that company to really make sure that, that they can meet the kinds of objectives from a, a business structure that they try to accomplish with building their, their technical network. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it really takes both things to be taken seriously in the market. The other thing that helps a great deal is if you have an articulate spokesperson, uh, somebody who can be heard by the community, and, and particularly if that person is, is well-connected to the community. Uh, we've been lucky there. I, I've uh, had a little bit of luck in that regard, and because uh, I used to write newspaper articles and do TV shows, I'm reasonably well-known in the industry. So I, that's helped us. Uh, other operators need to find those same kinds of tools to really grow their networks. Mm-hmm. But do you, so then, what's your advice to the uh, the the community side, the the government side that wants to only trust someone with the with the you know the the better dog and pony show? Well, a better dog and pony show is usually a case of look at our wonderful presentation rather than consider really what it is we are offering to build for you. I And when you get to the point where you are actually sitting down in a room with the parties that are involved, many times that local operator will be more knowledgeable, have a better understanding of the specific need, and a better handle on cost containment than the big guys will. Mm-hmm. One of the real winning aspects of the WISPs is that we know how to build things cost-effectively, and you know sometimes that uh, that means you know waiting to buy a particular piece of equipment on sale or or uh, finding a bargain because some other operator went bankrupt. You know a lot of a lot of telecom gear out there uh, is still floating around uh, from various boom and bust cycles in the in the industry, and some of it's available on, uh, for ten cents on the dollar. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it works any well less. Now the trick there is to make sure that that if you're going to do that sort of thing, you have sufficient spares to make sure that the technology is going to always operate and so on. But uh, it is possible to cost effectively build this stuff. You do not have to pay retail uh, when you're building your networks. I uh, certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't recommend it for a community. Okay. So now we've got, uh, let's see, we've got about five minutes here. Let's uh, tackle the question um, business customer or subscriber versus residential. You guys are in a business-only mode. That's who you sell your services to, and there's a lot to recommend that. Um, will fixed wireless be a viable solution if you want to get residents on board as much as you want to get businesses on board? Absolutely. Uh, the the trick is to have sufficient spectrum to do both. Uh huh. Okay. Right. We we re- regard the spectrum that we have as very valuable, uh, and consequently we want to maximize our return on it. I for us that means servicing business clients. 
That does not mean, however, that we entirely ignore residential clients. Uh, here's how we treat them. Uh, we'll go to mass users like uh, apartment complexes or hotel chains who have a business load at night rather than uh, during the day that may very well be consumer-driven. So we do have consumer-oriented customers on our network, but we consider them one commercial connection rather than 220 apartment dwellers in a mm -hmm. complex. We sell the complex. The complex distributes that Internet across all of its customers in the complex. So right. we see one commercial customer where another operator might see 220 residential customers. But do you, well, again, not you, but I mean, if I look at WISP in general, though, is fixed wireless a solution for reaching multiple residences, like, you know, yes. single-family dwellings? Yes, it certainly is, uh, particularly when you get to very light urban and rural uh, markets. The problem with, with doing unlicensed only, which you need to be cost-effective in a, in a residential kind of, of pricing model, uh, is uh, the, the realization that uh, unlicensed spectrum, while technically free, uh, with my observation that nothing's really free, mm -hmm. I, is a reused spectrum resource. And if you're one rural operator operating in a market where essentially nobody else exists, Oh, you can do a lot with it. I mean, when we started in Kansas City and wireless, we were doing amazing stuff with 2.4, uh, doing shops that, you know, covered miles that today wouldn't operate 500 feet because of the amount of interference that's in the market. Mm -hmm. Are there any um, parting, uh, maybe one or two uh, last pieces of advice, one for the community side, and 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 two for the um, business side on how to move forward. You know, sort of a wrap up well, kind of thing. For we only the have two minutes out there. I would say get in touch with your community development groups. Mm -hmm. These people are out there. They're reasonably easy to find. And for the community development groups, I would say listen to these rural operators uh, particularly and uh, to the other wireless operators and realize that they all have networks and they have networks they actually own, which is a valuable resource. I mean, after all, when we look at getting connected to anything, we can get connected by the wires and fiber of the telephone company. We can get connected by the wires and fiber of the cable company. And we can get connected by the wireless spectrum of a wireless operator. And whether that wireless spectrum is licensed or unlicensed, it is a viable technology that's there, and it's the only physical infrastructure that actually exists as a third alternative. Hmm. When you have three operators competing for business, mm -hmm. it is a much better picture than a duopoly. Okay. Well, this has been uh, a very enlightening conversation, and it probably will not be the uh, last con uh, conversation because I feel that, um, you know, especially as I'm understanding that more uh, WISP are getting involved in urban areas, uh, you know, we've got all this great speed capacity and so forth. You know, we'll be coming back to, to visit this topic. So, uh, you know, thank you for, for, for sharing uh, your information and knowledge. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. And I want to also thank our audience who has been very loyal. We've, uh, you know, we, we really appreciate your your being with us week after week. 
Uh, we just finished our year anniversary, actually, since this uh, show has started, and it has been a big success, and it's been a success because our audience has stayed uh, stayed engaged and engaged with our guests, and, and we hope you continue to do so. And finally, I want to thank our sponsor, uh, Team Fischl. They are in the uh, uh, network construction business, and they do great work. They're a good company to take a look at, um, and, and we appreciate their sponsorship and support of the show. Everybody, thanks again. Uh, we will talk again soon. Have a great day. Bye-bye.